Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back into the Buster Show podcast. We have Brian Pierup on the show. Brian, how are you doing? Buster, it's so great to be here, man. I've been a fan of yours for a long time, so it's great to finally talk to you, and I'm just happy to be doing this podcast today. I want to start this off with a bang. So I want to ask you about an 1890s Allen and Ginter card that I saw. You posted a video about what what's so special about that card and the history behind it. The N28, uh, 1887, and it was, uh, yeah, the original Allen Ginter. And what what kind of did it for me is I watched the baseball um, show by... Uh, what's his name? Ken Burns. If you haven't seen the baseball series, yeah. it's like seven, eight hours by Ken Burns. And I was captivated by this guy, Mike Kelly, who was he was like the original rock star in baseball. Like so by the time like he was dead and gone, Babe Ruth was just starting to kind of like get into sports. Right. Like just starting to be born in things. And so Mike Kelly was this guy who was like this hard drinking guy who was rolling around, hitting home runs, been going out and partying. He died at an early age, but he was like the original rock star sports star. And so when I first saw that initial Allen and Ginter set, and I knew that that was the key card in the set, and I didn't want the Cap Anson card for a lot of different reasons, but Mike Kelly, he was kind of like the OG uh, badass in sports. And so I had to have the card. I went out and got it. I've been waiting to find one that looked good to me, and that was the first one I came across that I really liked. That's pretty cool. I love the history of that. Nobody knows, you know, nobody that learns baseball today through social media is going to hear about that story other than, you know, from people like yourself. Um, you, you posted another video that was talking about a pyramid game when I was researching for this. podcast. <laughs> I didn't yeah. even know that that happened. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, sick, it's right? like a hundred times better than the field of dreams. I mean, come on, this is a real place. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine two American teams playing at the pyramids in Egypt at like the turn of the century and having all these like locals cheering them on. Like, and like the, the guts on the guy that flew everybody there. I can't even imagine what it took, like how much hassle and time and energy and money to go on boats across all the way to Egypt as two American baseball teams. It's, it's such an incredible story. So what, what time period? I'm trying to think in terms of when flight was <laughs> yeah, this the, was before the right, flight, yeah. This was pre Wright brothers. Yeah, pre Wright brothers, yeah. Holy exactly. cow. That I mean, today I, I have some friends who do um who have a deal with the Egyptian government to do art displays at the pyramids. And I know yeah. how difficult that is and the legal process you gotta go through uh to do anything like that today. So even possible. Yeah. I mean, it will no, that, that would be will extremely happen. hard today. It would be extremely hard to make that happen today. And uh, like I had, a, I remember the first time I went to the, the pyramids, it was really challenging to get there. And, uh, and that was about 15 years ago. And so the idea of grabbing a couple baseball teams, putting them on ships before any planes were going, taking them all out there because they need to have to like sail down, you know, through the med to get uh, to Egypt. And then, I just can't even imagine. It's so, it's so incredibly inspiring. I think it was Spalding that did it, or Harry Wright or Spalding. I can't remember the guy who made it happen, but incredible. Insane. 
you you were telling me before this, but you're you're an interesting guy, man. You've you've got you're obviously deep in collectibles and you know your stuff, but you're an entrepreneur on the side. You travel the world nonstop. You're a diamond member at everything there's a diamond <laughs> member to be of. You're having dinner with legends. I, I wanna I wanna get to know you a little better. So why what made you wanna just travel the world and spend all of your time doing that on top of you know the collectible stuff you've been doing the last couple of years? You know, it's just, it's ingrained in who I am. I mean, I was uh, living in uh, Japan when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I was hanging out all over Southeast Asia when I was like two years old. My All my early memories were there. I went to high school in Germany. I was living in New Zealand and uh, England and Scotland and, you know, just all over the planet. So, so whenever I'm in a place for too long, I start getting itch. I get the itch and I, I have to be on a plane. I'm really happy in airports. I'm happy in in hotels you know and so uh and then i find excuses so that i'm not just traveling for the sake of fun i usually travel for for business so like i ran a television production company for 10 years that dealt with china and india and so i was constantly having to fly to china and hanging out in hawaii on the way and then going off to japan or or uh bali or whatever and it was all for work and like right now i'm, I'm flying off to england for work in uh in february and then I go and find excuses to go all over Scotland and Ireland and Wales at the same time. So that's what I like doing. So what do you look for when you travel to a new place? Um, I like getting myself in with the locals. Like too many Americans, they fly into, you know, they're on their fancy flight. They land and go to their five-star hotel. They take a shuttle to the, you know, whatever's important. And so I like diving in deep and getting to know locals usually because I went to, I went to business school in England and there were 57 countries represented in my class of 150, uh, um, or yeah, 150 students from like 50 different countries. And so there's always somebody in any country I can fly to almost any country in the world. And then it will be somebody that I know from business school. So I'll call them up and say, Hey, I'm in town. And next thing you know, we're, you know, rolling all over the city and they're showing me all the cool parts you know i can fly into macedonia or you know uh, chile or argentina or wherever there's somebody i know in every country so you've you've built your geographical network well to position yourself to drop in anywhere yeah pretty much <laughs> and it, you don't have to give a lot of warning i could you know uh you know I, a buddy of mine you know i called him a few months ago and we met up in in Scotland and we just hung out in Edinburgh for the, you know, couple of days and had a great time. It was like magic, you know, that sort of thing. I love it. So you've <laughs> got all, you've got all these different businesses going on. What made you want to come into collectibles and, and begin to build things there? Well, I've always been a hardcore nerd when it comes to any kind of collectibles. Like, uh, like it's, it's bad. I got a problem. I collect shoes. I collect, uh, cards. It's always been this like really solo ho hobby. Like not a lot of my friends ever knew I was collecting, but, uh, you know, I collect movie posters. Like, yeah. I just have the collectibles gene in my soul, right? Well, my family thinks that. I'm a total yeah. weirdo, right? <laughs> so, and, uh, but with cards, it was this, like, dirty secret of mine, right? Like, if I travel somewhere, I'd, like, sneak off, you know, from the group and go roll into a card shop somewhere. And it was a fun way for me to see the country because I'd get to know locals anywhere, any card shop I'd roll into. But, you know, I pick up a few cards, add them to my core collection. And I have actually a pretty small collection because I like, you know, I, it's extremely streamlined. And then with uh, when the pandemic was going and uh, I couldn't do television in China anymore for obvious reasons. And so I was sitting there in L.A. going, OK, this is ridiculous. I can't do my main business. 
And so one of my, my guys on my team was asking me questions about, you know, my collecting habits and my oddities there. And I was kind of, you know, feeling a little shame about it. And I was kind of saying, Oh yeah, this is what I do. This is what I do. And one of my guys was like, you know what, I'm going to film you talking about one of your favorite cards. I'm going to put it on TikTok." And I was like, Oh yeah, man, whatever you want to do. So he, you know, he filmed me talking about some, I just rolled out of bed, hadn't taken a shower or anything. I'm looking real disheveled. And he posted on TikTok like an hour later and it like, you know, I think it was like 30 or 40,000 people watched it uh, within the next few hours. And, right. and he's like, let's, do, let's do it again. So he filmed me again and, and uh, it, another 30,000 and then a hundred thousand. And it kind of just, you know, started expanding. And then I started feeling like comfortable talking to people about this. And so it was kind of like, I've always been collecting. It was just the first time I'd been talking to people out and about, about my weird collecting habits which is fun. I love that. My my favorite thing that I've seen you do when I first started following was um handing packs out at games. I'd never seen anybody do that before. It's just not something that anybody thought to do. So that I love that. What I mean, what's Thanks, man. What's been the best reaction you've gotten when when handing yeah. those out at games and has anybody ever hit anything cool? Uh, you know, it was actually it wasn't actually my intention to hand out packs at games. It was an accident. What it was is that I went to a Dodgers game with my with my bros and as and I and I was like, hey, why don't we like open some packs sitting there? And then one of them would like film me looking for whatever card out of like a box or whatever. It was just meant to be that. And uh, and as I'm walking down the steps to get to my seat, some guy shouts out, yo, is that Topps baseball cards? And I was like, yeah. He's like, can I have a pack? And I was like, yeah, sure. Go on then. So I, I gave him a pack. And then instantly, like all the stands around me just exploded with people saying, can I have a pack? Can I have a pack? And so I was like, yeah, whatever. And so next thing you know, I'm like chucking them out into the you crowd. Are you morph into Oprah? <laughs> yeah, you get a card, you get a card. And so I just started throwing out card, you know, packs of cards into the, into the stands. And we were like, oh, whoa, there's something there. And so every single game I started going to, I'd bring at least a box. And, and it was just like, you know, bread you know seagulls on bread man it was like it was crazy <laughs> and i would have a great time and they would have a great time but i mean usually the stuff i bring is like we're talking like terrible it's like 88 tops 89 <laughs> tops junk wax yeah it's junk wax there was one game i brought a box of 89 upper deck and i chucked that out and uh so that was a that was a kind of a bigger one i bet people but, had no idea though well yeah most people don't have an idea but it was always fun later when i would I'd walk by to go get, you know, a hot dog or whatever. And I would see people in the stands, like going through their cards and like trading or looking at their cards. So it it had an impact on some people. Yeah. I love that. It is true for people who aren't in it for, you know, any financial reason, which is most of the hobby. People do it because it just makes them happy. That's why I start. I'm sure that's why you start in it. It just makes us happy. And then maybe it turns into something else or business, but it always starts with just making us happy. Um, oh yeah, it, it's true that like the effect of junk wax, it's very effective <laughs> in making people happy. Like you, yeah. even just like opening a, you know, I'm a basketball guy, obviously. So like '90s junk basketball. I mean, you open it, you get a Jordan. It's freaking exciting. It's exhilarating. It doesn't yeah. matter if it's worth two dollars in a PSA ten. You know, it's like it, it's just fun. It makes you happy. So I, I yeah, can definitely I... see how that translates there. Well, that's the thing is that I was seeing so much stuff in the hobby that was all about just the really, you know, like every video that I was watching on like Instagram or TikTok or whatever was always about like these million dollar banger hit kind of things, right? The slow reveal and then, oh, here's this million dollar card. 
And what I was noticing is there were a lot of people who were feeling bad that they weren't pulling, you know, fire all the time. And it made it seem like everyone was winning the lottery. You know, I talked to people and they'd feel bad that they didn't have a great collection. And they're, oh, I don't have these like million dollar cards. And so that's when I was like, you know what? Everybody's focused on like kind of the financial side. I'm going to focus on the fun and the and the happy stuff. And it's the stuff I enjoy. Like, so, you know, I mean, I've gotten like way pumped about finding like a $2 card out of a pack. You know, if it's the card, like, you know, if it's card I'm missing for my set and I pull that card and it's like worth $2, I get more excited about my $2 card than a lot of guys get about their $10,000 card. Right. And so. I started going around and, you know, opening packs with people and trying. And I remember this one guy and I think it was like St. Louis and he like found the David justice rookie card. We were looking, which is maybe a 50 cent card. And he's like, I can't believe I'm so excited about pulling a 50 cent card out of a pack, but I'm, this is like making my month, you know? So that's what it's about. A hundred percent. Yeah. It's funny at like shows too. I can definitely relate to that. You get more joy from finding something that, is great for two dollars than something that's great for two hundred or two thousand dollars. I yeah. mean, it's just because at at that point when you start spending real money, there's like you, there's a little bit of guilt for sure. Even if it's yeah. a good buy or good investment or whatever you want to call it, um, there's some potential downside, right? Yeah. When you're playing yeah. in the low games, there's no you're you're playing with upside. You're playing yeah. with unlimited upside from a happiness perspective. From a financial perspective, sure, um, you yeah. know, and I, I have a lot more respect, let's say, and I say that lightly, for the guy who finds a one dollar ticket and sells it for ten thousand, than the guy who spends seventy five hundred on breaks and pulls a million dollar card. I think absolutely, the former man. is more exciting. It's just more it's, exciting that that's the game. That's the thing, man. Is every car, like every box I've ever bought, I. I go in there expecting to lose. Like this hobby has just cost me a ton of money over the last like, you know, 30 years. Like I've only lost money on this thing. And I go in there expecting. It's kind of like going to a casino in Vegas. Like if you walk into a casino and you're expecting to like, you're only going to have a fun time if you win, you're going to have a terrible experience. Yeah. You're going because you're you're going to Vegas because you want to have fun. You want to play games. You want to be with your friends or whatever. But if you're going in there thinking, I got to make my rent on my trip to the casino, you're going to have a really bad day. And so yeah. that's how I approach cards is I approach cards the way I approach going to a movie or going to a theme park, or going to a casino. It's I know I'm losing money, but I'm going to have a great time. You know, I'll buy a, I bought like, you know, I've spent some serious money on, you know, like people are always like, well, what if, you know, that card's not centered or you're, you know, you're not going to get your return. Like I, I busted open at the time. It was a $10,000 box of, uh, of the Mike Trout box, uh, his rookie card. And I'm zooming around the country. I'm opening packs, looking for his rookie. And sure, the card I got out of there is probably worth a thousand dollars that when I finally found him. Uh, what people don't know is I actually had to buy two boxes to find his rookie card. So I was out like 15,000, I think, uh, on buying those boxes. So I pulled like a $1,000 Mike Trout card. And I was like, I was over the moon. I was super happy because I went in there expecting that I was going to take a financial hit and that the whole purpose of that was to have her great fun. You know, like I make my money from my companies. I make my money from, you know, my investments and other things I'm doing outside the hobby. So when I'm in the hobby, I go in there specifically uh, to have a great time, to to meet people, to have fun. And sure, if I if I make some money on something, I don't get me wrong, I'm really happy about it, and it's happened a few times. But it's not the expectation. 
that's a that's a very refreshing way to look at it. You go to the movie theater and you buy the overpriced candy. You just yeah. do it. It doesn't you matter. Do it. <laughs> yeah, you do it for fun, man. <laughs> Nobody's looking to get a return off their candy at the movie theater. No. You know? Yeah, I don't know why. I feel like that's probably applicable to all aspects of life. If you go into yeah. it expecting to have fun, unless it is business um, or unless it is your business, you just need one thing that works for you. And then the rest exactly. can be the movie theater. Exactly, man. I As long as one of my companies hits, I don't care on everything else as long as I'm having a good time and I'm hanging out with people I like, doing things I like, and I'm able to wake up with a clear conscience and a, and a clear mind at the end of the day. Undervalued. Under freaking valued. I love that. What what's what's your goal in with with the content you're doing in the collectible space? What do you sort of want to pass on? Uh, same kind of thing. Uh, the joy. Like I just posted a video on TikTok and Instagram and Facebook today of uh, me and a buddy of mine. We went to go watch his nephew play a uh, little league championship game in Huntington Beach, California, and we showed up with probably five thousand cards. Uh, and we went and after the game was done and the kids were, you know, finished with the game, we ended up, we, during the game, we we're putting all these cards into little baggies, like sandwich bags, and we we're just throwing them out to the kids at the end of the game. And, you know, and we put a lot of like star cards in there. These weren't like just like, you know, crappy commons. We put in like, you know, a bunch of relics and things because I'm not going to put them in my core collection. So let's just give them out. And these kids just went nuts for it. So there's that element is I just want to have people remember why they got into the hobby to begin with. You know, most of the people that have collected since they were a kid didn't get in because they were looking to, to make a profit. They got in because it made them happy. It connected them to their parents or their grandparents or because they played the sports or they loved the players or their stars. And so I'm just trying to remind people uh, why they got into the hobby to begin with. And then on the side, my second thing is I want to bring more integrity to the hobby, more I want to get rid of counterfeiting. Some of the things I'm working on with my core business in the card space that I'm going to release in the next few months is all about removing a lot of the crappy amateur stuff and the low-end stuff out of the hobby. Like I'm building high-end displays. I'm building protection things, archival materials, counterfeiting, killing technology. Like I've spent well over a million dollars this year building new archival and counterfeit uh, protection technology that's going to in my mind is going to really change this hobby for the good over the next like 10 years. So I've got my little, I got my little top secret plan on the side. The TikTok stuff was wow. just meant to be a fun thing on the side, but my main thing is what I'm going to be releasing in the next few months. That's great to hear. Cause there are a lot of improvements, obviously, as you know, that, that can be made on, on that front. Yeah. And I'm yeah. going to wreck the counterfeiters this year, man. I'm wrecking counterfeiters. Good luck counterfeiters with what I'm coming out with. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. I see Oh, it, pay, it pains me. It pains me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ain't, I, ain't nobody going to be able to fix uh, Yeah. The counterfeiters, it's like an arms race. Man, I'm dropping the bomb on these guys. I love that. That is good. That's good for people who are collectors too. It, it preserves value in collections and things like that as well. Um, the display yeah. thing is interesting. It's true. There aren't that many, you know, great displays for, you know, even like, I mean, I collect the most oddball stuff, but like, you know, I have, yeah, I have a collection do. of, um, you know, hand painted SpongeBob backgrounds. Uh, like, how the hell am I supposed to display that stuff? I don't know. Yeah. Um, nobody. Yeah, the options great. are terrible. The options are terrible. I'm literally the best I have is like what you would put a 16 by 20 photo in, like yeah. those plastic cases. It's like oh, the best. Oh, and Buster. 
you're gonna love what we're coming out with, man. Like, uh, like that's that was my frustration is that I would walk into card shops and it was always the same display options since the '80s. It was plastic sleeves, top loaders, uh, you know, one touches ugly pleather binders with like a baseball shape or cardboard boxes, or you could, you know, go to some high-end framing shop and they could build you a frame. And I got sick of that because I have, I do have some really fancy, nice cards and I've always wanted to have them like on my wall or on my desk or in different kind of configurations. But I also don't trust plastic. I don't trust the polymers getting seeping into the cards. I don't like things that rattle. I don't like, uh, there's so many different ways the cards have been used and abused. And it's been very, very amateur, whereas the cards themselves are way beyond amateur now. We have very, very high end, you know, Mickey Mantle that sold for 12.6 million is in a crappy piece of plastic right now. And it's displayed in a crappy, um, like, it's like a plexiglass kind of dome thing. And I, so I, I hated all that stuff. And I, I have a, I'm a bit of a designer and I, I thought, you know what, let's, let's rethink the entire hobby. Let me go in with some really heavy hitting designers who, um, and electrical engineers and mechanical engineers. And so I went and kind of hired this whole team of engineers to rethink from the ground up every element of the hobby and how to bust, you know, counterfeiting, how to display your collectibles in something that you're going to actually want to invite all your friends and family to come and see because now everything's elevated. It looks better. And it's everyone always tries to predict what I'm doing. And every single time they're all wrong. They're all wrong. They're just thinking the same kinds of stuff that's currently in the hobby. When I've, when we've gone like a, oh, a massive tier above, like, you know, like when I showed even like, you know, I showed Ken Griffey Jr. My stuff uh, when we had dinner a couple of weeks ago and he's just like, I want to have all my stuff in your stuff. He, he actually has quite a large collection. He has of stuff. Cards. He's got oh, some yeah. stuff. He's got yeah, some he, juice. Yeah. He's, <laughs> the, he, he's the, he's the man. I love that guy. And he has, uh the most enviable card collection he has like every he has he thousands really? thousands of cards yeah and so you know i'm like i'm gonna stick all your stuff into my into my you know displays what's the and best so, stuff ken griffey jr has <laughs> uh i probably shouldn't share all that without his <laughs> buy-in, but, enough, but uh enough. we'll just say it's the kind of collection everybody wishes they had got it that's a good way to put it um yeah well, I'm I'm excited to see these cases. That's a it's exciting. Definitely a lot of room for improvement on that front. Um yeah, it's it's interesting. Like one of the things that got me excited about NFTs was the future think forward thinking of cases and displaying things. And yeah, you know, obviously that does take a it's it's looked like um uh six flags roller coaster that uh, went defunct because it crashed and killed people. That's what yeah, that market yeah. looks like. Um, yeah. But I do think there are things that you can take away from that, like uh, companies that have, uh, you know, created frames that you can digitally input and authenticate um, yeah. NFTs and, and digital collectibles and photos. Like I collect type one photos as well. And that's, that's cool. It's your type one photos are the original NFTs, right? Yeah, that's that's very cool. So you know, Buster, so, you have an amazing collection. <laughs> thanks. I I gotta show you the whole. I mean, my my big PC is Washington and Lincoln. Oh uh, man, yeah, George, George the... Washington and Abraham Lincoln documents. Um, that's the, the that's the big thing. But then like SpongeBob, like a bunch of different stuff, drawings. <laughs> that sketches, is quite a art. range between Washington and SpongeBob. That's quite a spectrum. Here, give me give me one minute. I'm gonna pull I'm gonna pull out a Washington and a SpongeBob for you. Oh man. 
have you read the um i just read this monster george washington book um uh this last year went and visited his uh grave in in um in mount vernon have like i know i find that dude fascinating who washington yeah i just read oh, his like incredible. monster like th thousand page book um about his life and then went up to uh went up to mount vernon had a peek around i was fascinated so you're you're collecting the right stuff man washington is almost as great as spongebob i'm just kidding almost they're I'm you know similar similar but right? um no yeah washington and lincoln those are my two two favorite presidents boys. it's not even close but so like here's um so i don't know if it talked about it in that book but so when Washington was in his early 20s, he was buying a lot of land. He was doing land surveying yeah. and, and buying yeah. a lot of land. And he bought, um, unfortunately, more than he could afford. So he had to sell bonds to cover his debts. And this is a receipt, one of two known, uh, a, a bond receipt wow, to dude. a friend to cover his debts in 1760 from Williamsburg. So here he wrote out, you know, 16 shillings, uh, you know, t 10 pounds, 16 shillings, uh, 23rd of the next year or due 23rd of, uh, May. Yeah. And then a giant, he had three different yeah. signatures. One that they just basically slightly changed on the G over the course of his life as president, before yeah. president. And this is the middle, uh, signature. And it's one of the, one of the biggest, Dude, um, Buster, that's so cool, man. Like, uh, yeah, actually, it's funny. George Washington was like this hardcore entrepreneur, like real estate developer guy. Like he just bought everything he could. Like he had owned like a huge monster chunks of land all the way out to the to the Ohio River Valley. Yeah, it's the Ron hey, Chernow he, book. That is had a, a monster book. You know, I, I've got to read that one. But uh, Washington did it, build a, a real portfolio. Um, so yeah. here's here's the you know opposite side. Almost three hundred years later. <laughs> Um, so here, this is a, this is one of my SpongeBob frames. So what, what you need to know about SpongeBob frames, long story short, is that only the first season was hand painted after that, it went all digital. So there are only 20 episodes, a and B yeah. that were hand painted and for every cell. Um, so like every slight movement you yeah. know, for any animation, it's a different cell, but the same background. So there are only 40 to 60 total backgrounds per episode. Um, and only one season was hand painted. So this is obviously a, a hand painted background with a cell uh, from the pizza delivery episode. Um, Dude, I love that so much, man. No, I'm a huge fan of that kind of stuff. Like I used to work at Disney for a couple of years. And oh, did on you the really? Wall, yeah. And at the wall, on the walls of the Disney studio lot it, at a lot of the animation buildings, they all have like individual cells from like the original Snow White, the original, right. you know, Robin Hood or Pinocchio. And I'd always like to walk through and take a look at these things because I'm like, these are pieces of art. They're pieces of history. They're pieces of art. And so you're doing the right thing collecting uh, what you collect, man. I really yeah. respect your collection. You're, I'll, I'll show yeah. you one more just because I grabbed it when I got the Washington. This is the Lincoln that I just got. It's a letter from Dang. it's a letter from it's not all in his hand just the bottom portion is in his hand but it's from a gentleman dated april 14th significant day it's the day he was shot um two years beforehand Jeez. in 63 during the civil war this guy wanted to become the brigadier general of new mexico during the civil war so he's writing this he talks on the on the other side about how he wants the attorney general to you know essentially persuade Lincoln using his, like he mentions the quality of 
the AG's relationship with Lincoln in the letter, which is crazy to think about as like when he wrote this, Lincoln was a real person who could be persuaded through someone else's relationship with him. It's hard to think about historical figures in that context, but then this is all in the attorney general's hand. And then the bottom part is Lincoln. and He signed it at the end, approving this guy to, you know, to the secretary of war. Um, wow. That's a monster piece, man. You got like, like what I'm getting from you of us here is you're not just a collector. You're like the historian, like you're uh, you got a real history um, aspect to you. Uh, that's so cool, man. I I just love, you know, similar to you just love the history of the game and the game to me is just like, earth so far is the game yeah and i'm convinced man if george washington were alive today he would be a baseball card collector he would or a sports card collector you think so oh totally totally that dude was so meticulous one of the reasons why we understand him so well is he collected like every scrap of parchment or paper he ever wrote anything on so there are these guys that would like follow him with in the wagon train and all they were meant to do was to like document and hold on to all of his like writings they they had to duplicate all of his writings they put those in a whole nother trunk ship them off so he'd have them protected that if he ever got captured or whatever that dude was a collector and he collected land too so uh yeah he, he's a collector he's one of us <laughs> i wonder if he would be going for vintage or he would be flipping modern uh <laughs> i think a little bit of both he'd, he'd want to get his values up because he's so, he was so driven by like increasing the value of his portfolios but I think he's also a vintage collector as well because he's an archivist. Well, one if George Washington were around today, he would definitely be collecting George Washington. <laughs> Absolutely, man. So that's so cool you have those. Those are incredible pieces, man. Incredible. I I just, you know, like the history and and talking about it. And what I've found too is um the second you own something, you're just gonna learn about it. Um, yeah. so some people spend a hundred thousand a year to go to college and learn about something. Uh, yeah. other people buy the pieces that force them to learn about that exact same thing. Um, Agreed. but you know, I, I, for me, at least, you know, being, I was a terrible student, dyslexic, ADHD, all that stuff. There was no way in hell anybody could tell me or force me to learn about history, but the yeah. second it's in my hands and you know, you can understand that these were people and you can understand the impact that Abraham Lincoln leading the civil war had on our day-to-day lives today. Like when you put those pieces together and you believe it as like looking at them as real people and not just cartoon characters. um, Although obviously we love cartoon characters too. (laughs) Don't want to, don't, I don't want to discriminate here on the podcast against the SpongeBob's out there, but um, yeah, it's, it's just different. I, I think it's good for, you know, uh, people in general, I think collecting is good for education of history. Um, so that's- absolutely, absolutely. It was, uh, it, it's the same thing where, you know, the cards that I had when I was a kid, those are the players that I, I fell in love with and needed to know everything I could and, and any kind of, yeah, you, you nailed it, man. I, I think universities and, and that, you know, you go and you have your curriculum and there's, you're not going to be interested in all this stuff unless you have some sort of practical reason. Like it was like, I went to business school and I learned a few things, but what I really learned was getting my hands like super dirty over the next few years by starting my own company. And all of a sudden, all the things I learned at business school were like, oh, that's why we learned about that. But I didn't learn from business school. I learned from 
from everything that happened after by starting my own companies and getting my, you know, my ass kicked uh, 10 different ways and mm-hmm. realizing all the things that could go wrong and fixing those things, learning from those things and then growing from those things. So yeah, you're totally right about the university stuff. Yeah. It makes sense. You know, from reading investment books, uh, you know, where most of it is just like nonsense. There are a few things that I've taken away, um, you know, and, and it's like these, uh, if somebody buys, like, let's say a stock at a certain price, they're anchored in their mind to believe that that is fair value yeah. for the price, right? Yeah. All yeah. those concepts I've realized apply to education. If you're, if I'm anchored to George Washington, I'm going to learn about George yeah. Washington and learning history. Yeah. History repeats itself in one way or another is going to benefit you in everything that you do, but you're not going to dive deep unless you're, you have some sort of relationship to these, to these people or moments or history. Yeah. Like I remember I, uh, when I kind of got back into collecting about, you know, I had this like hiatus, like where I left for maybe 20 years or whatever, but I started getting back in about 14 years ago. Um, and I remember I found this book called, uh, mint condition and, that book was like this ginormous, it had the biggest impact on me from a collecting standpoint. Um, uh, the author went around and kind of talked to everybody that was important in the hobby. He had really did his research and he really talked about the history of card collecting from the 1860s and kind of how it evolved from like, you know, tobacco cards into the gum wars of the 1920s, 1930s. And all of a sudden, now I'm wanting to get a Napoleon Loajoui rookie card. I'm wanting to get, you know, all these different kind of cards. And so it was kind of reading that book and reading about its history. And I discovered this, this blog in the early days of my collecting called baseball card blog. It was like the OG kind of blog out there Mm -hmm. in like 2007, eight and nine. And I was reading that, reading the mint condition and those deeply impacted me. And so I'd try to find the cards that I was reading about in those kind of blogs and, and books. And then it just made all the history. I, I started enjoying it from a historical perspective. That's why I got really into the vintage. I only started collecting modern just this last year because I wanted to learn about it so I could be more of an expert on it when I'm talking about things. But I was always into vintage because of those books and blogs in the early days of my collecting. I love that. Well, man, I'm trying to be like you on the traveling front. Sometimes I feel like I'm in one place for too long. I, I love, how do you get yourself to just get up and go? when you think that you've been in the same place too long? Um, I feel, I start feeling lethargic. I like, if I'm in one place too long, I get into routines. And if you get into a routine, time flies and you start doing the same things every day. And so the only way that I can like maximize my life and uh, kind of uh, get done the things I want to do, I have to be, I have to be on the move. I have to be interacting with new people. I have to be out of my comfort zone. I have to be in hotels and taxis and airports and, you know, and being out of my comfort zone with like languages or I always feel most alive when I'm flying somewhere I've never been. I'm having to like navigate myself uh, around and it just, it makes me feel alive. And there was this study that was done a number of years ago. I read that was about how memory is stored and about how, uh, the difference between long-term memory and short-term memory and about how if you want to have the longest life possible where you feel like you've really lived a super long life, you want to have as many different kinds of experiences because if you have the same experiences every single day, your short-term memory kind of, it doesn't uh, differentiate. And so when you look back at your life, uh, the way you view time is different than if you 
Like that's why when people have the same day over and over again, they go, wow, the last three months just flew by. It's because of how you store short-term and long-term memory. So if you're going out and switching things up and you're going to a different coffee shop than you normally do, or you go to a different place than you normally do, your memory is actually like, whoa, these are new experiences. And so it actually puts them in uh, into different categories within your brain. So it may, makes it feel like you're actually living a much longer life. And I know it sounds bizarre, but- No, but it makes perfect you, sense. It's really yeah, smart. Yeah. yeah, it's also, uh, I've, I've thought about this a lot, why people feel like they're, why people are so nostalgic to their childhoods, because when you're 10, one year is 10% of your life. But when you're 70, one year is just, you know, a very awesome. small fraction of your life. Um, you know, so it, it time becomes that's, that's less cool. significant as you get older, um, yeah. because it's a smaller and smaller portion of your entire life relative to how old you are. Um, yeah. You know, so that, that that's something I've thought about a lot, which is, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Like what you're doing is sort of the only way to possibly combat that. Um, yeah. Because like evolutionarily speaking as well, humans weren't meant to sit for 10 hours a day and look at a screen. No. I mean, that's no. just not how we were built. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I'm definitely a believer in trying to like tap into whatever, you know, we were we were meant to do on that front. So I, I, I admire being on the move. I've just found like when I told you before the podcast, when COVID hit, I was traveling the country, yeah. got rid of my apartment. And that's what allowed me to like, let myself do that. But now that I've, I like have a place again and, you know, uh, I, I find yes. it more difficult, which is I'm sure relatable for everybody listening is that they have a place and it's harder to just be like, okay, I'm just going to go. Um, but I guess it all comes down to risk tolerance. It's risk tolerance. It's a uh, comfort zone and risk tolerance. Uh, so I have a, I admittedly have an extremely, extremely high appetite for risk. Um, uh, that's been a, a theme in my life. Totally. Some of the wild stories that happened in like China and India, you'd be like, Whoa, that's some very high risk stuff you did. And um, so I know what I do is, is bizarre. Um, but and I do want to kind of like, at some point, you know, settle down and actually, you know, do wife, kids, house, you know, the whole nine yards uh, when I'm older, you know, and yeah. but uh, no, I, I always encourage people anytime I meet people, I'm like, hey, what's that thing you want to do? And people always have some sort of dream they tell me about. And I'm like, well, how, how are you going to go about doing it? You can do these things. You just have to open yourself up to risk. And there's different levels of risk that people are willing to live with. And I understand that and not, you know, uh, but uh, it's. It's always 99% of the time uh, doing things outside the comfort zone are always worth it. I love that. That is a great way to close this up. Brian, you are the man. I'm going to link all of your socials in the description. You guys can find it there. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, man. This is awesome. Yeah, dude. I've been really looking forward to meeting you, Buster. And uh, if you ever want to catch up in New York City, I'll be you know, moving there. Actually, I'm flying there tonight. So, or after uh, uh, New Orleans or Miami. So, looking forward to meeting up with you, bro. Somebody's going to be listening to this in 2028 and they're going to be so confused. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Exactly. We'll see you guys later. Hey, thanks, Buster.